0: to FBN this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those and get to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, can you join me in thanking Zach and Maggie for stepping in for Brandon Grace this morning? <laughs> so 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat backs in front of you, uh, page 1055 or 1056 right in there. You'll find uh, where we need to be. We want you to be able to follow along to know uh, that what we talk about here is not our opinion, which is ultimately irre- irrelevant. Uh, but we point you to the Word of God, which is timeless and eternal. And so, I want to thank each and every one of you for being. If you're a guest. Uh, We're super excited that you're here. I know how hard it is to try something new, and so uh, there should be some uh, connect cards uh, near you. Uh, You can fill those out, or you can take your uh, camera app out and scan one of the QR codes and back, and uh, just find a way to, if you'd like, uh, to fill out a connect card to let us know that you are here. If you stop by the welcome desk on the way out, we have a gift for you, uh, because you've you've taken that risk of trying something new today, and and we really appreciate that. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we uh, launch out in this time. God, we are grateful uh, for the chance that we have to be here today. We're grateful for each and every person who's here, each and every person who's joined us online as we turn our attention now uh, to your word. I pray that you just continue what you've already started in the worship, Uh, Lord, that you continue moving, you continue speaking, uh, that you would draw, that you would teach, God, that your voice would be loudest now. Push me out of the way, push distractions of life out of the way. Uh, We just invite you to have free reign in this room and that you get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name amen. Well, several years back, um, maybe even longer now, uh, my brother and I were, I was playing golf with my brother Brian, and uh, it was one of the times our schedules just lined up. It was, we were both just out of college, and uh, we went back to, to Cloverdale, where we both learned to play the game. He's actually the one that taught me, and we joined a, a one-day tournament there at Clover Meadows Golf Course, and we just happened to be put on the same team, which was kind of fortunate, But the way these one-day tournaments work at Clover Meadows is, uh, you you get certain teams shows up, and then everybody goes the first tee and watches everybody tee off. And so, if you're the first group off, you could have 25, 30 people watching you tee off. And we were the first first group to go, and so I was the first person to hit a shot, so I had about 30 people watching me hit, and uh, you know how a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then? I actually hit a good drive, and uh, immediately the peanut gallery started chirping, right? And it was all the, it was all the uh, we'll call them more seasoned gentlemen. They're old dudes, okay? And they just said, boy, what I'd give to go back 30 years, right? Boy, these young ones, they, just, they, just they can just swing so much harder, you know, and they just did all this chirping. And so our two teammates hit, and then Brian steps up, and he hits his drive, and since I'm fairly confident that Brian never listens to my sermons. Uh, I will admit that his drive probably went even farther than mine. But in case he's listening, I outdrove him by at least 40 yards, okay? Um, but it's in. as soon as he hit, again, wow, to be young again. Oh, my gosh. To, it's no fair. These young guys play a different game. And apparently Brian had just had enough because instead of just letting that go, when he got to the cart, he turned around and looked at all 25, 30 guys staring there, and he said, please, when you are our age, you could never hit a ball that far. And then he drove the cart off. And maybe you're wondering how I responded to this, right? Maybe you have higher standards for me uh, than my brother. You're like, surely I was was, uh, shocked by his disrespect to the older guys, right? Actually, I laughed for at least 30 seconds before I could even compose myself. Because it was funny and it's true. Sorry, I'm not sorry. It's true, right? But here's the thing. That's not the first time we'd heard that not even close, right? It's, it, we'd grown up on that course, and every time you hit a long drive, that's what you hear. And so I thought about what was it about that day that he finally just said something? Like, why did he finally speak up? And I've never asked him, but this is my theory, okay? Uh, in college, um, Brian and I got to play uh, for, two, uh, for three semesters. We had to play on the same golf team before I transferred and he graduated. And so uh, we are at Marion University there in Indianapolis, and one of the things, one of the sweet benefits of being on the golf team at Marion University is they paid for a membership for you to Riverside Golf Academy, which is uh, a super nice heated driving range so you can practice all winter long. It's got an indoor putting green. And so um, the only thing the coach asked for was that every time that we went that we would record the practice in his office so that he know that they're getting a return on their investment and that he could kind of hold us accountable about how much or how little we're practicing. And so I played three semesters there, and every semester I either finished second or third on the team in number of practices. There were 12 to 15 guys on the team, depending on the semester, and I was always second or third, and I was never anywhere close to first. Never. First was always Brian by a long shot, because he would go morning and evening, two times a day minimum. Sometimes he'd even go at lunch, too, so three times a day. And he would spend hours working on his swing, fine-tuning his mechanics. And I think what happened was after all that, when those guys threw out all that practice and all that prep out the window and acted like it was just age difference, he'd finally heard it one too many times. Because deep inside every one of us is this draw to grandeur, right? We want our lives to count for something great. We want to leave a mark. We want to make a difference. We want to be exceptional. And we're studying 2 Timothy as a church, and I want you to see in this letter that that's not a bad desire. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. He wants him to be exceptional for the Lord. He wants Timothy to leave a lasting legacy. He wants him to make an eternal difference with the one life that he's been given. He wants him to be used by God for incredible things. But Paul knows, he knows that this doesn't happen without the small, consistent, everyday steps of faithfulness. Because the issue is, we all want the grandeur, but none of us, or far few of us, want the preparation. If Timothy was gonna be faithful to the end, if Timothy was gonna be used by God for, for really great things, if he was gonna leave a good and lasting legacy, if it would require him to be faithful in the every moment, in the every hour, in the every day. He'd have to get used to being different. He'd have to be okay with cost and sacrifice and effort. He'd have to value and protect and cherish truth. He'd have to present himself as set apart, as honorable and useful for God, and there are no shortcuts to that. I really wish there were, but there aren't any shortcuts to that. And this aim that Paul has for Timothy should be the aim that each of us has for our own lives, that we should present ourselves to God as honorable, as as distinct, as set apart, as useful for him, And if you'd like that to be you, I'm really glad that you're here today, because we're going to see in God's Word this morning how how that is possible, and we're going to see this done by by, by these little steps of consistent faithfulness, the harder things, the less exciting things. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read our passage for us today. We're going to focus in on 2 Timothy 2, verses 19 to 21, but for context, I'm going to ask him to go all the way back to verse 14. And so if you are physically capable, would you please stand with Chris to honor the reading of God's Word? Thank you, Chris. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open to there. That's where, like I said, we're going to zoom in on 19 through 21. But I want to thank Chris for reading for verse 14 because the context matters, right? I want to remind you of the context that we've been studying so far these last few weeks, and that this section uh, of this letter is all about how Paul wants Timothy to handle truth. And I think the key phrase that we in this section we find in verse 15, uh, in which it is written that Timothy should correctly handle the word of truth. All right, so we've talked a lot about that in recent weeks, and last week, uh, Adam took us through verses 16 through 18, in which Timothy was told not even to engage, Right? don't even go there with, with useless talk and quarrels, and he was to avoid irreverent and empty speech. And at the end, in verse 18, Paul addresses false teaching that's been occurring that, that has ruined the faith of others. And he gives two examples, our brothers H and P, right? Uh, and they've been teaching wrong things about the resurrection. And so if you've read any of the letters in the New no Testament, you know that this has been a problem. This is not a Timothy problem. This is not even an Ephesus problem. This was a problem for the church, that wherever the church was early on, false teachers were there trying to ruin it. Uh, Wherever truth was presented, falsities were trying to jump in. In fact, the vast majority of the letters that we have in the New Testament are in direct response to false teachers trying to corrupt the church. It's why we have a lot of the New Testament books that we do. And so far, Paul has told Timothy not to engage in useless debates. He's told him not to tolerate false teaching at all. And he's going to expand on those thoughts in verses 19 to 21. And the first thing they want to pull out from from those passages is this, that the church will be just fine. The church of Jesus Christ will be just fine. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. And so like I mentioned, from, from the start, from the foundation of the church to today, the church has been under attack. We talked two weeks ago how God uh, calls his church to be a beacon of truth, to be a beacon of light, and light always attracts bugs. And so even though there's a lot of passages in the New Testament that are about correcting false teaching, it's important to note there's not one of those passages that has a defeatist attitude. Not one. Why? Because humans can do whatever they want. They won't stop God. They won't. Because listen to the foundation church, Matthew 16. This is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, I say to you also, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, listen to this language, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower. I'm serious. Take note of the language. Jesus says, I will build my church. Do you hear the possessiveness there? Jesus isn't leaving the success or failure of his church to another. He's going to build it. And when he does, the gates of hell won't even overpower it. Which is why I was drawn. I was really drawn to the first word of verse 19 this week, especially in the CSB. Right? The first word, in the verse 18, it's pretty ominous, right? That's where Adam left off from last week. Verse 18 talks about these false teachers who are spreading lies and they're ruining the faith of some. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? But what's the first word of verse 19? Nevertheless. And by the way, I read that as incredibly dismissive. Almost like Paul is just brushing them off. Here's the evil thing that they're doing and the ruin it's causing. Oh well, they're no threat to the Lord. Now that's not dismissive of the destructive nature of false teaching. Like Paul wrote about that more, probably more than any other subject. What it is dismissive of is this idea that any human, that any false teacher would ever have the power to stop the church or stop the gospel. Because nevertheless, God's solid foundation is firm. That foundation is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, his gospel. And we're told in verse 19, now that foundation is sealed with this inscription that the Lord knows those who are his. There are all kinds of false teachers who have come and who have gone. There are more who will come and more who will go until the day of Jesus' return. But God has known all along who are his. He knows whom he's called. He knows whom he has saved. He knows whom he has redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He knows whom he has established and gave, uh, gave, uh, g- uh, gave posts and authority to in his church because it's his church, not anybody else's. It's his. And so God will preserve it, and God will protect it, and God will build it, and God will expand it and multiply it and bring glory to himself through it as he sees fit. I will build my church, Jesus says. So what's our part to play in this? What's well, the end of the verse? The end of verse 19, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. We are not in the church because of our efforts. We are not in the church because of our goodness. We are God's children because of his saving grace to us. But if we, if we call upon, if we claim the name of Jesus Christ, then we need to be people who are people of truth and integrity. If we claim the name of Jesus, we need to be people who cherish and uphold that which God says is good and discard that which he says is not. There's a phrase that has caught on in recent years. I've heard it a lot. I don't know if you've heard a lot, but I hear it a lot now. And it's presented as the widely accepted ideal that we should all strive for. And here's the phrase, that you need to be on the right side of history. And the idea is this, that you need to carry yourself. You need to hold views. You need to hold beliefs that generations to come will look back on you and approve of what you did. That society, the idea is that society is progressing forward and you better get with it or there'll be some future human that will shake their head at you. I get the notion. I even get why that would be appealing, but man, is that short-sighted. That is incredibly short-sighted. The right side of history is way too low a bar. The goal should be on the right side of the future. And the future I'm speaking of is when each one of us is going to stand before God in heaven and give an account for everything that we've done and everything that we've said. And what will matter on that day is not what some future human thinks of me, but how God sees and values the things that I've said and done. As followers of Jesus, we, our, our aim must be to please God in everything that we do, to, to hold to his truths, regardless of how history would view us, as if we could even have any control over that. Our aim must be to to, to be faithful to him, to turn from wickedness, to bring him glory, because everything else is going to fade away. Nothing else will last except God and His church. They are eternal. Secondly, we see here that not all efforts for God are equal. There's an interesting dichotomy to the kingdom of God, and it's one I think would be good of us to understand. It's absolutely true this morning that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus. There is no one who is righteous, not one. All of us are sinners. All of us have the same desperate need for Jesus to save us. And so when it comes to being in the kingdom of God, when it comes to being God's children, when it comes to being saved, we're all equal. There's not a one of us who deserves salvation any more than another. Ephesians 2 picks up on this. It says, you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Not one of you who earned this. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. So what in the world is Paul getting at in verses 20 and 21? Look at those verses again. He says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but, there were, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Honorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So in this analogy, Paul is equating the church to a, to a really large house. And he says, in this house, there are different types of utensils. There would be those valuable to utensils that are made of gold and silver, and, and they're used for really good purposes. And then there are less valuable to utensils for wood and clay. And they're used for what he calls dishonorable purposes. Now we need to understand that Paul is not saying that some Christians are more valuable than other Christians. It's not, it's not a rating scale of people. Remember the context. This is why we had Chris read all the way back to verse 14. This section is about teaching and correctly handling the truth. What Paul is saying is he's making the distinction between true teachers who correctly handle the truth and false teachers who do not. And he actually writes about this other places. He writes about this to Corinthian church too. And he sets it up with this passage. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and now another builds on it. But each, each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for, for no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus. And we're gonna continue that passage in a second, but Paul is reminding the church there, and just so you know the backstory, Paul was the one who planted and established the church at Corinth. And so he's reminding them of the foundation that he set with God's grace, that the church was founded on the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul went on to other cities and other towns to plant other churches. And so now there are other teachers coming in behind him, building on the foundation that he laid. And here's the warning that Paul has for them. First Corinthians 3 continues. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What Paul is saying there is that anybody who teaches, anybody who leads, anybody who influences anyone in the church, they are building on the foundation that's already been laid. But their work is going to be put to test by fire, by God's refining fire. And those who correctly handle truth, that fire actually becomes purifying. If their teaching was that of gold and silver, it survives the heat. It's actually molded by the fire. But those whose work is cheap and incorrect, the fire burns it all up. And Paul mentions at the end here. If they're, still, if they're a follower of Jesus, they're still going to be saved by his grace. But none of their work, none of their efforts will store up any treasure in heaven at all. You see, there are too many things done in the name of Jesus, too many things done in service to God that are absent of reverence for God at all. There are too many things done in service to God that are absent of reverence for his truth and his word. If our service to God isn't from a place of reverence and devotion to him, if we aren't driven by a love for God and a desire to please him, if we are careless with his word, if we are careless with his truth, then we might have a lot of effort we're throwing out there, but in God's mind, there's not a whole lot to show for it, because not all efforts are equal, which is why the third thing is that God's servant should be set apart, this reality that everything I do for God was going to be tested by fire should only increase my desire to be one of those honorable, valuable utensils for him. And that was what Paul's desire for Timothy was. Look again at verse 21. He said, So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, Prepared for every good work. The only question to ask after reading that verse is this. Why would you not want that to be you? Why not? To be that special instrument for God. To be set apart by him and for him. To be useful to him. that, That you would be prepared for whatever he decides in his wisdom to bring your way. The only reason we wouldn't want that is because of the costs. That's it. Because we don't become special instruments overnight. This story was first, I first read it in one of those Daily Bread devotionals, and I tried to confirm uh, dates and names on the internet this week and was unable to, and so maybe it's a true story, maybe it's an allegory. Regardless, there's my disclaimer, right? But several centuries ago, a Japanese emperor ordered an artist to uh, paint a painting of his favorite bird. And a few months passed and he sent his servants to the artist and said, you know, that we're here to get the painting and it wasn't ready. And a few more months passed and he sent more servants and it still wasn't ready. And finally seven years passed and there was still no painting. And the emperor, just at this point, lost all his patience and just went to the artist's home himself. And he demanded an explanation for why this artist was ignoring the emperor's command. I told you to paint this, why haven't you painted it? Because the artist made no excuses. He offered no explanations. He went and got an easel and a canvas and in the emperor's presence, in less than an hour, he completed a brilliant painting of this bird. And the emperor was very confused, because on one hand, he was incredibly pleased. It It was literally a masterpiece right in front of him. But on the other, he wanted to know why it took so long if this was so easy. Like, why have you been ignoring me for several years if you could just knock this out in an hour? And that's when the artist took him to a different room and showed him stacks upon stacks upon stacks of papers in which he'd practiced drawing the bird and drawing feathers and drawing wings and drawing the head and drawing the feet over and over again and then painting it over and over again. He'd spent all seven years practicing and preparing so when the time came, he could paint it brilliantly. Too often, we want to paint the masterpiece without the prep. Too often, we want to be used by God for mighty things but barely acknowledge him in our daily life. We'd love to be teachers of many, but we won't even get in the word ourselves. We want to lead people, lead congregations, but we won't even join a group. We want to run ministries, but we won't serve first. We romanticize traveling overseas, but we aren't the light of Jesus to the places that he's already put us. What we want is we want to be the special instrument without having to be set apart first. Paul wanted Timothy to be that special instrument, but he knew that he would have to be set apart. Every church around him in Asia has already deserted truth. Remember that from chapter 1? There are people in his own church who are trying to drag him down into useless arguments. There are voices that had found an audience in his congregation that were spreading lies harmful to the faith of others. And so for Timothy to be set apart, he must cherish God's word and the truth. For Timothy to be set apart, he must love God enough to know him deeply. For Timothy to be set apart, he must sow those consistent seeds of faithfulness day in and day out. For Timothy to be set apart, he must do these things when they're popular and when they're not, when he's cheered and when he isn't. May God find in FBN not delusions of grandeur, but instead may he find in us an earnest willingness to remain faithful in the day-to-day leaving the rest to him. So how do we do this? How do we ensure that, that we are actually set apart by God? How do we become honorable utensils for him? Well, there's a couple of suggestions that I hope will be helpful this morning. And the first is this, is do an elimination diet. Okay, I want you to, to understand this, I want you to look back at uh, verses 16 and 17 real quick, in which Paul writes to Timothy, avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godliness, godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. So Paul mentions there that, that, that false teaching will spread like gangrene. Now gangrene is a disease that is absolutely nasty. And what happens in gangrene is it's, it's when blood flow to a large collection of tissues in the human body is, is cut off. And so then all that tissue dies. And I, that's not bad enough. Gangrene also spreads and starts infecting other parts of the body. And so if it's left untreated, it causes sepsis and becomes fatal. And Paul is saying there that this is what false teaching can do in the church. Not only does it harm the person who's saying it and those who are first listening, it can also spread. It can work its way through the body and kill everything it touches. And do you know, by the way, do you know the only treatment they had for gangrene at the time that Paul wrote this letter? The only treatment they had was amputation. If you had gangrene in a foot, you cut the foot off. If it was on your hand, you cut the hand off. Right, that's the only way to stop it. And that's how seriously Paul wants Timothy to take this stuff. Now an elimination diet, it's not quite that dramatic, but it's still helpful, I don't know if you know this concept. Elimination diet is designed to figure out what it is that's harming you, it's often often tried whenever there's some chronic health condition that you've tried several different ways to remedy, nothing has fixed it, and so people will go through what is called an elimination diet, which there are certain ingredients in food or certain allergens they cut out of their life completely to see if they can heal up or see if they can identify what is causing their issue. And we've already talked about in this letter how we need a diet that is, is rich in truth, right? that just as with your body, if all you intake is junk, you're going to be unhealthy. The same goes for our spiritual diet. If you ingest false teaching, if you ingest truth that isn't true, you're going to be affected. You're not special and different that way. If you ingest those things, you're going to be affected. As with all things, you're going to need the Holy Spirit's guidance in this. Some Christians act like any disagreement with someone on a minor matter is enough to dismiss someone and anything they've ever taught is invalid. You don't want to be that person. But that said, can I just say this? There are way too many Christians who are way too comfortable uh, and lax reading and listening to false teachers just because they're popular or just because they say things that you might like to hear. This is why it's incredibly important for you to know the Word of God, It's why it's incredibly important for you to rely on the Holy Spirit. So when you hear and read things that are true and helpful and align with this book, they can be of huge benefit to you. And when you hear and read things that aren't true and aren't helpful and don't align with with this book, alarms can start going off in your mind and heart. Because sadly, not everything that is said or written or promoted under the banner Christian is actually true and based on the Bible. And the only way, the only way you can know the difference is by knowing this book. And there are no shortcuts to that. You have to read it for yourself. And so if you've never, get, get, get with a reading plan, follow a reading plan, join up with a partner, join up with a group and read with them. Get yourself acquainted with truth. It's incredibly important. But when it comes to the elimination diet, we should also do this with non-Christian sources. Because here, here's the harsh reality. at the, the last... Four or five years have revealed anything about the church in America. It's that many Christians are being discipled more by Facebook than they are the word of God. many people are being discipled more by celebrities and social media and cable news and other people more than they're being shaped by God and his truths. And so the wisest thing for us to do is an elimination diet. That if you find your worldview, you find your gut instinct reactions, you find the things that elicit emotion out of you, you find that your view of others are being shaped more and more by sources other than God's word, then it's time for amputation. It's time for you to cut those voices out of your life, bare minimum, at least for a season, and to do everything you can to ensure that what you're being shaped by, what you're being molded by, what you're being formed by, is God and his truths first and foremost. So what is it? What influence has more influence than God for you? What voice is louder than his spirit? What truths are more prevalent than his word? It's time to eliminate. It's time to amputate before the damage is worse. And when you do that, fill the void with the Bible. Secondly, I think it would be helpful for us to cherish grace but still pursue holiness. The grace of God is the fuel that we run on. We burn through more grace every day than we ever realize. Everything that we are, everything we have comes to us through the grace that is in Jesus Christ. So we must cherish that grace. First, the first way to cherish is just by receiving it. So if you're here this morning, you've never believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, you've never embraced the grace of God that's available to you. You owe God a debt. You owe God a payment for the sins that you have done, and you cannot make that payment. And if if those sins aren't paid for, you're going to spend an eternity in hell absorbing the wrath of God for those sins. And God, in his love and his grace to you, sent his son Jesus, who lived the sinless life that we could not, who died to pay our price on the cross and rose again to offer us eternal life. And if you want to avoid hell and spend an eternity in heaven, there is only one way. It is by belief and total trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It's not by belief and trust in your goodness. It's not by belief and trust in some religious ceremony done to you as a child. It's not by belief and trust in good works. It's, in, it's a belief and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You do that, you will know God's grace in full. He will forgive you of your sins. He will redeem you. He will adopt you as his child, and he will take you forever home to be with him in heaven. And that is a grace that we cannot forget. We must cherish it. There's nothing that I could ever do to make God impressed with me. There's nothing I could ever give him that he needs. He will never love me more or love me less than he does right now. And so I must cherish his grace and never get a big head. But at the same time, it is good of us to pursue holiness. That as a response to that grace, we should seek to honor him with our lives. Not to earn our place with him, that's already happened by grace, but in an effort to please him. Look again what Paul wrote to Timothy, second half of verse 19, he says, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Verse 21 again. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he'll be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. I think the piercing question of this passage, I think the piercing question of any pursuit of holiness is this. What is my attitude to my own sin? What is my attitude to my sin? Am I apathetic towards it? Am I tolerant of it? Do I try to explain it away? Do I justify it? Do I just assume God's forgiveness that I receive that grace without pursuing holiness? Or am I actually sick and tired of my own sin? Do I really despise and hate the things that I do that, I, that doesn't please God? Am I broken at all at how my sin affects other people? Am I broken at all that my sin put Jesus on the cross? Other questions we need to ask is, is there any sin that you're cherishing more than you cherish God? Is there any relationship you have in your life that you've not submitted to his authority? You're living outside the bounds that he has established. Is there any area of your life that you just won't let him touch? God, you don't get to speak into this area. Is there any habitual sin that just keeps owning you? And if you're honest this morning, you've kind of given up the fight. You've given up the fight. See, followers of Jesus should strive to please God in all that we do. And whenever we violate his commands and value something more than we value him, there's nothing about that that's pleasing to him. And so ask God to help you see your sin the way he sees it. Ask him to help you see the immense value and relief and joy of holiness. Ask him to make you more and more and more like him and less and less like you so that we can be increasingly set apart and useful for our king. The, the cold hard fact about this passage is this, is that there will be some utensils that are wood and clay. There will be utensils that aren't set apart, that aren't special, that aren't useful to the master, but there will be others that will be gold and silver. And there will be people that are used by God as special instruments, people who are set apart for their king, people who are useful for him, people who have taken steps to allow God to prepare us for any and every good work he might bring our way. It's a mindset shift from serving myself or serving my family to I'm going to serve God in every area of my life and use every experience to see how I can improve and be better at serving him. And so the question is, again, why not you? Why would you not want that to be you? And I promise you there aren't shortcuts to this. So let's be in the word. Let's eliminate voices that push us away from Christ. Let's take steps of pursuit towards him in every day. And may we present ourselves as useful instruments for our master. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that your word is so clear that we are all equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus. God, there is none who are righteous, none who have earned their way to heaven, none who could ever stand before you and be declared not guilty. And yet you stepped into our place, you took on our punishment for us to offer us grace and eternal life. And so if there's anybody, anybody within the sound of my voice who's yet to believe in Jesus Christ, who's yet to surrender their lives to him and ask him to forgive them and save them, I pray that right now would be their moment of salvation. God, that they would, they would embrace the grace that is made available to them. They would embrace your love and goodness that is drawing them to you right now, that they would be saved this morning. And then, God, for the rest of us, as we cherish that grace, may we also pursue holiness. Would you give us the wisdom to eliminate voices and influences in our lives that have way too much hold over us and are leading us to places that you wouldn't want us to be led God, would we, would we have the guts, would we have the boldness to cut those out? And then, Lord, would you help us to see our sin the way you see it? Would you help us not to dismiss it, not to be apathetic about it, but to actually be broken over it? Lord, I pray that there'd be a rush of repentance in this room this morning as we contemplate the things that we do that are not pleasing to you, and that we'd actually be broken over them and take them to you and find your grace anew once more. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before Zach and Maggie leave, us, one last song. We'll give you a couple moments to spend some time just between you and the Lord uh, praying and wrestling with some things he might have put in your heart. If you want, there's some guidance on the screen for you, but really this is just your time with him, so please take advantage of it.